Welcome to the Real Time Roots Podcast. I'm your host, Christy L from Joybelie, and Sarah is with me in the studio. Hi, everyone. At Joybelie, we help you grow your own food and medicine so that you can create health and wellness for your family naturally. Today, we're going to be focusing on food preservation, a very important aspect of growing your own food. And we're also going to be talking about why it's really important right now to be taking steps to preserve food. And we're going to give you at the end a easy, actionable step that you can do right now to get started. Sarah, if somebody didn't have a garden right now, or maybe they're growing a garden for the first time, let's talk a little bit about where you can find food locally to you. Well, some grocery stores will carry a few items from local farmers. Not all of them do. And unfortunately, that is becoming shut down as time goes on. But there's also often uh, weekend markets. They may be called a crafter's market or it could be an indoor farmer's market. And there's usually at least one farmer's market per community. I know in one of the larger centers near us, the farmer's market moves from outdoors in the temperate portion of the year to indoors for the entire winter. In my small community, we actually had an indoor farmer's market for the entire winter for the first time this year. Normally, we only get it during the summer months. And usually, local farmer's markets will start up around May or June. Another great place to find local food is local farms, of course, because they're growing the food. And you might think, well, you're living in a city and there's no farms close by, but often there'll be farms not very far from a city. Um, In fact, farms spring up around cities because that's where their market is. So you are very likely to find local farms just outside the city, maybe half hour to an hour's drive. And if you live in some smaller cities, they could be even closer, sometimes right in the city. Uh, Where we are in British Columbia, near Kelowna, you don't have to go far out of the city to find local orchards and vegetable gardens. In Kelowna, you can still be in city limits and go to the orchards. So it's actually very, very close, as well as having fruit stands very, very close. That's another option is the street side stands. And often farmers will come to the city with, as you mentioned, street side stands or even just setting up at corners or in city celebrations like 4th of July, July 1st for Canada, you can find farmers there with their boxes of of fruits and vegetables ready for you to purchase. And usually the prices are a little lower than getting them from the grocery store when you buy in bulk that way. And there are a lot of benefits to buying local food instead of sort of the opposite is buying it from places like Costco where it comes in on big trucks from far away. Buying local food has a lot of benefits. One of them is um, local food is fresher because you're getting it closer to when it's harvested. And so you're getting higher vitamin and mineral content and higher nutrition and better flavor too. And the other benefit of getting your food locally is supporting local economies. I live a little bit rural and right next to me, there's a beef farmer and I like ordering like a side of beef from her once a year and we uh, go pick it up at her farm and 
it's knowing that I can do that. I know that she's getting the income she needs to stay in, in our neighborhood and to keep growing for the community. And she, she's uh, doing a booming business. Having that connection with local growers is really important too, because the more people uh, support them, the more they can stay in the local community, supporting the local community, taking part in community events. And it, also gives you the food security, knowing that they're going to be here when you need them. Can you think of other benefits of local food, Sarah? Well, I know our local farmer's market usually brings in the corn when it's in season multiple times over the course of the market because they're out picking it fresh that morning. And you also get the other fruits and vegetables picked fresh from many of the farms. They usually pick the morning of the market if they can. So you're definitely getting, say, your watermelon or your cantaloupe or your corn when it's at the peak of freshness and ripeness. And with corn, that also means at the peak of sugars. And you don't end up with the uh, starchy, not very sweet corn that you can sometimes end up getting used to if you're just buying it from the grocery store. And it also works out cheaper to buy a dozen ears of corn at the market compared to buying fresh ears individually wrapped in plastic at the grocery store and less plastic. That's always good. Another benefit of local food is that often you can get deals like at the end of the market, they'll often not want to take boxes home with them. And so you can often approach a farmer about getting, say, a box of peaches to make jam with or that kind of thing, just because they don't want to travel with it. We've done that a number of times. It's really nice to see the people that you've grown up seeing at the farmer's market, and the relationship is definitely very, very valuable. Yeah, especially, I agree with you, Sarah, the, the relationships that you build up in the local community because people start caring for each other. And when you are in a situation where you are food insecure or you have potential to be food insecure, that can really make a huge difference, having that relationship with local farmers um, and local food growers. And I should say not all food growers are necessarily farmers. A lot of people that we have at the local market aren't farmers, but instead they're gardeners who are bringing their surplus to the market. We have quite a few people who do that, actually, or who just garden in very small areas, like just growing garlic or just growing lavender and other herbs. And they have a very, very small profile, preferring to do crafting instead of farm-specific items. But they do have enough farm-specific items to be in the farmer's market. It also means you can get to know the farms who are in your area, and then you know what they offer, what you can source within your area. With the winter market, we were able to continue sourcing root vegetables like carrots, beets, winter radishes, parsnips, rutabagas, potatoes, all through the winter from the local farms rather than having to rely on the grocery store for them. And that was especially relevant when we had road disruptions this past year. Would you like to talk about that, Chris? Sure. So um, I live in British Columbia, and in November, we had a natural disaster. There was what they called an atmospheric river that flooded the roads in the Lower Mainland. Now, we live about six hours from the Lower Mainland, where we are, but the 
amount of rain that came down in a 48-hour period was so much that it completely washed away the highways and the bridges and the railway bridges throughout the province so that there was no traffic going in or out of the lower mainland. And where we live, most of the food supply comes by truck to Vancouver, and then it's shipped out to the rest of the province. That's just how they organize the supply chain here. And when that happened, it completely cut us off from the lower mainland, from our food supply, from our gas supply. Uh, They declared a natural disaster and then they started rationing. There were actually grocery stores in the area that was affected that closed in the middle of the day because they were afraid of running out of food, leaving a lot of people in a lineup outside with no food and no way to buy it. So one of the things that happened when we didn't have any food is for a couple of weeks, there was no milk and people that needed milk for their children or their families or for just general cooking couldn't get milk from the grocery store. But we happened to have a small specialty dairy called Jerseyland Organics, and they still had milk. They still had cheese. They still had yogurt and they had a lot. They didn't run out the whole time that the whole community was cut off from the outside world. Jerseyland never ran out of milk. And so they were available. And so that's another great reason for connecting locally. If you are ready to start on your herbal journey to get to know herbs and make your own medicine, I've got the perfect next step for you. My membership, the DIY Herb of the Month Club, will help you get to know your herbal allies by studying one herb at a time. And we make a game of it. You will go on a 30-day journey with an assignment to do every day that will only take you 10 or 15 minutes. You'll go on a monthly quest to build your confidence so that you can learn to rely on your herbal allies. You'll invest just five to 15 minutes a day of hands-on guided exercises to gain knowledge of each month's herbal ally. You'll also learn how to grow, forage, or find each month's herb. You'll study the historical context of the medicinal and or culinary uses of each herb. You'll create a personal Materia Medica for long-term reference. You'll also study the modern scientific studies and evaluate their methodology and conclusions. And you'll engage your senses both logically and intuitively to get to know each herb really, really well so that you can use it confidently. So stir up some recipes with me and start using your new herbal allies for focused hands-on learning inside the DIY Herb of the Month Club. So I hope you'll decide to join me. The link is in the show notes. what we experienced in the natural disaster is, according to the news, coming to cities near everyone soon. Forbes talked about that the supplies of corn, soybean, and wheat are at an all-time low, and that it's going to take at least two years before supplies are back up to normal. The USDA is predicting that supplies of soybeans are going to be there's going to be less than 10 days of usage when the harvest comes in, and it's not coming in for another six months. And then the soybean inventories are down 80% over what they normally are, and they're not expecting it to improve when the harvest comes in. What they're predicting in the corn 
inventories is that where we would normally have about 50 days corn supply, we're down to just 33 days, just over a month. Um, and they're not expecting that it's going to improve when the harvest comes in in the fall. And then Bloomberg talked about cans. And I heard that in Italy, when they were needing to preserve tomato sauce and tomatoes last year, that there was a shortage of steel cans and therefore they couldn't preserve the tomato harvest. And there were many places in the world that depend on Italian tomatoes for their tomato supply. They just didn't get tomatoes. Another shortage that we had last year that personally affected us was canning jar lids uh, because of the, the supply of steel being low. It was really hard to get canning jar lids last year. Now, I noticed that the stores here are starting to get them in again. Um, but for food preservation season last year, canning jar lids were really hard to find. The counter.org announced that the Biden administration announced this week that they're going to pay farmers to leave their land fallow in an effort to cut greenhouse gas emissions. And they're planning on doing that all the way to 2030. Now, we already have a shortage, a predicted shortage of commodities, food commodities, and uh, that's just going to become worse if farmers aren't growing food. Where's the food going to come from? Do you, do you think, Sarah, that the, uh, the war in Ukraine is going to have any effect on the global food supply? Well, it definitely seems to have put pressure on a lot of the uh, grain and agricultural resources that would normally be sourced in Europe, particularly with countries jumping into sanctioning importing from Russia. And with that, the agricultural products, oil, gas, coal, everything that would be normally shipped out of Russia is putting a crunch on the supply chain from coming from other parts of the world because, well, countries are reacting to the conflict by locking their doors against imports. So it does look like things are definitely skyrocketing, and it is definitely concerning that uh, people in North America would be wanting to leave land fallow when we already are projecting a shortage of the traditional monocrops. How do you think we should be working with building resilience in our own communities when reflecting on what is going on in the broader world? That's a good question. I, I think that it's super important right now to get those relationships uh, with local producers, local farmers established, especially if farmers are leaving their land fallow and not harvesting their crops for for the big corporations, because they'll have land then to uh, to grow their own vegetable gardens, and maybe what isn't on the books might come to uh, to be available. Also, another thing is that we didn't really talk about it, but of course, there's the fact that you can grow food, and we've talked about this in other episodes, where you can grow your own food and have resilience that way. One of the things that I think is really important as we're talking about the need to grow food, the need to preserve food, and why it's important, and that's because there are looming food shortages worldwide. As we talk about preserving food, there are numerous ways to preserve food, and we're going to talk about different methods, but I want to first couch it in a story. A couple years ago, we, we got a brand new freezer, 
And um, I was gardening and during gardening season, it's really hard to do food preservation too, unless you actually intend to make time for it. And so I was just bringing stuff in from the garden, chopping it up and pretty much blanching it and putting it in the freezer. And I wasn't using, even though other years I had used uh, what I call the rule of three to make sure that we had various methods of preserving our food. That year, I only did the freezer because of time constraints. I just thought, I don't have time to do dehydrating. I don't have time to do canning. I'll just stick it all in the freezer. And we had bought a brand new freezer, and it took a while to get it in place. By the time we had emptied our old freezers, moved them out of the way, and then stocked up the new freezer, we were already getting freezing weather. And so the freezer looked like everything was okay. It it looked like it was working. The food was kind of frozen. And I didn't think about it again until one day in January, I, the freezer was outside and I went outside to get some food from the freezer and the food was kind of soft. Um, it still had ice crystals, but it was kind of soft. And then I started worrying and it looked like in January that the freezer food that I had stored and it was my only food preservation was lost. You know, over a few days, we realized that it really wasn't cold at all. I put a thermometer in. All of the cold that was keeping the freezer going was the cold from outside, and the freezer was not functioning at all. We lost everything in that freezer, and I had no backup, so I had to buy food at the grocery store, which was great that year because there was food to buy, but I wouldn't want to go that route now with what's going on. And so I now try to apply the rule of three whenever I preserve food, meaning I put some in the freezer, but I also can some uh, with water bath canning and uh, some pressure canning. And I also dehydrate food and freeze dry food. So I make sure that there's everything that I store, I store in at least three different ways so that if I have a loss in one area, I'm not left with nothing. And I know, Sarah, you do that too. I, I have seen the dehydrator in your house, so I know that you also use your freezer and dehydrator. Um, you want to talk a bit about that? Sure. I like using the dehydrator as it makes it really easy to preserve uh, fruits and some vegetables for snacks that can go in work lunches or be quick to grab for the little one once she gets up to the age of snacking on dried fruit. And I don't actually use my freezer a lot for preserving. I only really use it for blueberries and a few vegetables. I much prefer the dehydrator for like dried tomatoes because dried tomatoes are really versatile. And I've actually started doing pressure canning in the last year, which has been very interesting to learn how to do the canning for tomatoes. They're always a good starter one. And then I also actually taught a... Uh, young homeschooler how to pressure can meat. I've done some pressure canning of chicken breast and beef. So that was very interesting. And we actually even did whole chicken legs. So how will you use those when you open the can? They work really well if you drain the broth and use it as a base for soup. And then I've just actually chopped up the meat to make um, quick chicken salad, really. The beef is good just eaten on its own. I don't really like turning that into like a chopped beef salad. That's a little bit weird as a food I found. But the chicken definitely works well just slipped into chicken salad. 
we added onion to the meat. So it went through with a little bit of flavor in the processing as well. And there's a lot of good nutrition in the broth, particularly with the chicken that was canned with bones. I added a little bit of um, vinegar to help draw out some of the minerals from the bones so that it would have a nutritious broth as the base. So you did that right when you were canning, you added the vinegar to the jar? Yep. When we were packing the jar, we put in the meat, we added the onion, we added the vinegar, and we added a little bit of water to help with it. And then wiped down the jar, on go the lids, and into the pressure canner. So you use your freezer, you do pressure canning, and you do dehydrating. So you do apply the rule of three when you're preserving food. In a manner of speaking, I guess I do apply the rule of three. I just never thought of it as applying a rule. I just like having certain things preserved in certain ways for ease of use. So one of the good things about dehydrating that I really like is you don't need to have a special container to um, store the food. In dehydrated food, it's already dry. You don't need a special canning lid. So last year when we couldn't get canning lids, it was really easy to dry the food, get it in the dehydrator, get it dry. And then with dried food or dehydrated food or freeze-dried food, you can store it in bags. You don't need to store it in jars. So that makes it really easy if there's a shortage of something else. And they are anticipating more canning jar lid shortages. This will be the third year that they're anticipating a canning jar shortage or the lid shortage. And that's because of what we mentioned earlier with the shortage of cans. So it's good to have a backup to make sure that there are other ways to preserve food. If someone was just getting started, Sarah, in preserving food and they hadn't done anything before, what are a few tips that you could give? Maybe you could give a few of your tips and then I'll give some of my tips for getting started on safely preserving food. Well, it really depends on which food preservation method you want to start with. Obviously, if you're just starting out, you are not jumping directly into freeze drying since that is a very expensive piece of equipment. Freeze dryers are pricey. And even though freeze-dried food is delicious, it is probably better to go with something more simple, like say you bought a thing of cherry tomatoes and you realize you're not going to eat all of them fresh before they start going off, so you put them in the freezer in a baggie. And you can pull those out of the freezer at any point and add them to a tomato sauce or a stir-fry or any other dish you might like a few tomatoes in, and you can cook them into your dinner that way. And you'll have prevented the fresh cherry tomatoes from going bad and expanded your ability to use them. Another example might be deciding you want to try out dehydrating food and maybe dehydrate something like apple slices or banana slices in your oven. You don't need a dehydrator. You can just use your oven set to one of its lowest settings. And in a few hours, as long as you're home to monitor it, you can have dehydrated apple chips or banana chips. One thing I noticed when I was actually in the grocery store this week is that the conventional banana prices hasn't gone up, but the organic banana prices have gone up by another 10 cents. Bananas and apples are two of the things that will go on sale even at a traditional or conventional grocery store because they want to clear out bags that have bruised apples in them or bananas that are starting to get into the overripe stage. Or if you wanted to go even simpler, you can do what I've often done, which is buy the almost overripe bananas, peel them, 
Stick one banana per baggie in small freezer bags, pack those into a larger freezer bag, and use them in smoothies or for making banana bread. And freezing them that way prevents them from going too overripe. I think, Sarah, what I hear you saying is the first place to start is on the food you already have in your house or that you can get on sale at the grocery store and preserving it so that it doesn't go bad. That's the first place to start. So that might be apples, it might be bananas, it might be tomatoes. And once you get started there, you can practice on the food you already have. And to do that, the first thing to do is not to let it go moldy in the fridge. So instead of putting it in a jar or a container in the fridge, the leftovers, that is, instead of putting leftovers in jars and containers in the fridge, get them preserved right away. So you might do that by uh, putting them in a baggie in the freezer and then adding it later to soup. You might do that by putting it in a dehydrator or in the oven and drying it and then putting it into a bag or a jar for later use. It's not going to go bad once it's dry. Or you might do that by, I guess you could eat it, right, Sarah? Eating it. Always. Using it in a leftover casserole or a soup. That's the first step in learning to preserve food is not letting food go to waste. I do want to mention, too, that it's really important if you're preserving food for future use to make sure that you um, start with a clean counter, a clean cutting board, and clean hands. Freezing is not going to remove bacteria, um, and also dehydrating is not going to remove bacteria. So if there's bacteria on the food when you start, it won't disappear just because you've you've preserved the food. It'll just slow down the bacterial contamination, but it won't it won't remove it. So always start by preventing bacterial contamination. Start with a clean surfaces to work on, clean cutting board, clean knives, clean hands. And then from there, go ahead and do your food preservation. You know, I know, Sarah, you mentioned about freezing and drying bananas. And I noticed that bananas have not really gone up a lot in price where everything else is in my grocery store here is probably up by a third, 30% at least. There's a few things that haven't increased in price and bananas is one of them. 10 cents is really, is only a 10% increase over and it goes up and down. So I I think a really positive action for anyone that would like to try food preservation and maybe hasn't done it before would be to start with those bananas. If growing some of your own food sounds like something you're ready to do right now, I've got the perfect next step for you. My Fill Your Salad Bowl workshop is a concise workshop that will show you how to grow enough greens to fill a salad bowl every day. That's a great first step, just to fill a salad bowl. It's not overwhelming and anyone can do it. You can do it even if you don't have any land, even if there's three feet of snow covering your garden, even if you've killed houseplants in the past, and even if you don't think you have a green thumb. Here's what we cover in this workshop. Now remember, it's a concise workshop. It's not gonna take a long time to go through, so everyone's gonna have enough time to do this. You'll learn three different salad green growing methods that you can implement right away. You'll learn the exact methods I use to keep my salad bowl full so I never run out, even if I have unexpected company. You'll also learn where to cut costs and still be successful growing salad greens at home. You'll learn the ideal equipment to use if you want to grow greens faster and easier. The unique pitfalls to avoid with indoor and container growing. 
You'll learn how to save a crop that goes wrong, where to find organic seed at reasonable prices, how to store your seed so it stays viable for years so that you can save money now on bulk seed purchases. And you'll learn the health benefits of sprouts, microgreens, and healthy greens and how to optimize these benefits in the way you grow them and the way you store them. We'll also give you 17 ideas for using homegrown salad greens in the kitchen so they never get mundane. If you're ready to start growing some of your own food and you think salad greens are a great place to start like I do, check the link in the show notes. So let's talk about canning. Uh, You mentioned canning when you were um, listing the things that you do, Sarah. And I want to point out that there's two kinds of canning. One is for high acid fruits and recipes like pickles where you're actually adding acid. Um, And that's water bath canning. And that's pretty easy to do. You just need a big pot and some jars and you can go for it. And the second kind of canning is pressure canning. And for pressure canning, you need a special pressure canner, not a pressure cooker, but a pressure canner that will get the temperature high enough in the jars well above boiling. And it does that by applying pressure at different altitudes. So with water bath canning, you're going to use that for things like pickles and jams and jellies and chutneys, ketchup, a lot of tomato products, but not all tomato products. And then pressure canning, that's where you're going to do um, your vegetables, things that don't have acid added, some tomato products, and then of course, meats and seafoods. So let's talk a bit about what canning would be the best method. What kind of food would, would canning be the best method for, or why would you want to can? Sarah, when you think back on the things that you like to can, what kinds of foods are you looking at? Well, I feel the most confident with my canning when I'm doing pressure canning. So I usually stick to like whole canned tomatoes, crushed tomatoes, tomato sauce. And then I've also been doing canning uh, beef and chicken, often with onions or other spices added. And I find that the pressure canning works really well for canning the meats. It's reliable, it's consistent, and it's really easy to tell early if the jars have sealed or not. So I really enjoy it for that. I haven't done as much with uh, jams or with water bath canning just because I don't feel quite as confident with them. But I really do like the pressure canning because I'm guaranteed the temperature and the sealed jars afterward. What I like about water bath canning is that you can make a lot of condiments that you normally would spend a lot of money on at the store, like pickles, for instance, and ketchup and sauces and like barbecue sauce. And you can also use it for things like applesauce and canned peaches and canned pears, all of the high acid foods. Now, um, pickles aren't necessarily a high acid food, but we add vinegar. And so the vinegar makes it a high acid food. And so those are the things that we would do water bath canning for. But I agree. Um, I do both. I do some water bath canning and I do some pressure canning. Where would you start? Well, if you want to start with water bath canning, you just need a big pot and some jars and then get a good canning book. The USDA has a canning book called The Complete Guide to Home Canning. 
and it is updated every couple of years with the latest research, um, and that will guide you well through getting started with water bath canning and with pressure canning. So we've talked about freezing food, which is probably the most straightforward. We've talked about dehydrating, we've talked about freeze drying, and we've talked about canning, and those are the main methods of food preservation. Is there anything you wanted to add that maybe we missed, Sarah? Well, with the canning, the main special equipment that would be needed for pressure canning is, of course, the pressure canner itself. And then there's also a couple smaller equipment pieces like a jar lid lifter, so you don't scorch your fingers when preparing the jar lids before sealing. And then there's also the um, jar lifter to remove hot jars from the canner. Those are some very valuable pieces of equipment I found when working with my pressure canner. All right. Now, there are some best food safe practices. When you're working with food preservation and you're expecting it to last a long time, Food preservation doesn't necessarily get rid of bacteria that's on the food or if you contaminate the food with bacteria from your hands or dirty utensils, it won't take those away. So we always start, regardless of what kind of food preservation we do, we always start with by washing our hands, washing our work surfaces, taking normal food safe practices. If you are packaging, for instance, dry food or freeze-dried food, it's a good idea to wear gloves when you package so you're not introducing bacteria and that kind of thing. So very clean practices are very important with food preservation. Of course, with preparing your work area, you'll want to make sure you have clean cutting boards, that you're not using the same cutting board for, say, meat, and then turning around to chop up vegetables on it. But you could probably chop vegetables, then wash your cutting board and chop the meat. And my main thing with doing anything with food preservation is making sure your knives are sharp. You are less likely to get cut with a sharp knife than with a dull one. You have more control. You can do more consistent chopping. Evener chopping means that the preservation, say in the dehydrator, will be done at the same time. You won't have some pieces of, say, a tomato that are partially dry and other ones that are completely dry. It should all dry at roughly the same rate if they are roughly the same size. And also, I found that having a sharp knife helps me avoid uh, wrist pain from the repetitive chopping motions. If I have a dull knife or I'm trying to force it through really tough vegetables, I find it can trigger some wrist and joint pain, which is not fun when you are in the middle of full summer tomato harvest and are trying to dry every single tomato in sight. Another helpful thing when you're doing food preservation is to buy food in season and if you can to buy it in bulk. Food is generally less expensive if you can get it during the growing season. For instance, last year I went to a farm stand and I was able to get 20 pounds of sweet peppers for $10. And right now in the store, I'm paying $3 per sweet pepper. So great for me to have preserved it last October at 50 cents a pound instead of, well, $3 a pepper is like $6 a pound. So I save a lot of money that way. 
and also to have enough to make it worthwhile to set up a dedicated work area in the kitchen and to just go at it until you fill the dehydrator trays or you put food in the freezer. And I also want to say that you don't need to blanch peppers, onions, or mushrooms before you you do whatever you're going to do, whether that's uh, dehydrating or freezing or freeze drying. You can just put them right on the tray. Most foods you do need to blanch, but those particular ones you don't need to. Anything you want to add, Sarah? Well, a good thing to do is to plan some of your food preservation to make sure that the food you already have on hand is not wasted. I will frequently run uh, half a dehydrator load. My dehydrator is divided into two segments with five trays each. So I'll either run the top or the bottom independently, and I will often have something different on every single tray in that half of the dehydrator to make sure that what I have on hand that's extra, maybe that's strawberry tops from chopping up strawberries for the freezer. Maybe that's tomato skins from prepping tomatoes for salsa or things like that, that normally could end up in the compost. But in reality, if you put them through the dehydrator, you can use them for tea or you can powder them. And it's just generally making sure that food is not wasted. I'll even dehydrate the uh, ends of mushrooms and use them for mushroom powders for thickening sauces or soups because it adds a little bit more nutrition to the soup or the sauce. I don't have to use, say, flour for a thickener then. And I'm not wasting the more expensive foods that I'm purchasing. And of course, the easiest way to get started is going to be with something you already have in your kitchen. That could be a bunch of bananas that are starting to get overripe. That could be oh, a 30% off bag of apples that you picked up at the store and you want to preserve. Or that could just be that you bought a couple heads of lettuce and they're taking up too much space and they're going to go bad before you can use them. Because lettuce can be dehydrated, bananas can be dehydrated, the apples can be dehydrated, strawberries can be frozen, they can be dehydrated. I love dehydrated strawberries. Those things are delicious. And basically the easiest way to get started with food preservation is just making sure the food you're already buying is being eaten. What do you think, Chris? I think that those are all great suggestions. And I would like to suggest that for the listeners today, one of the easiest things to preserve is bananas. And if you have bananas that are just right at the peak of ripeness, the way you love them the most, you can preserve those in several ways. One, you can freeze them. And all that requires is to peel them and put them in the freezer. Two, you can dehydrate them either in your oven or if you have a dehydrator, you can dry them in the dehydrator. And all that's required is that you slice them. Um, I like to go about a quarter of an inch thick and lay them in a single layer on dehydrator trays. Or if you are one of the blessed people and have a freeze dryer, freeze dried bananas are amazing. So I would like to suggest that you take action today with that. All right. So in this episode, we talked about a down-to-earth way of thinking about food preservation. Food preservation is so important in your overall strategy to be more self-sufficient and to thrive. And so we focus today just on food preservation, but some of our other episodes talk about growing food, growing medicine, and preserving medicine. 
So make sure that you check back on some of those other episodes. We also talked about where to find local food, how to establish food security for your family, um, some of the benefits of getting food locally rather than depending on the grocery store. We also talked about food security and we talked about the reason why it's so important right now to be thinking long-term in your food preservation strategies. And we talked about the importance of the rule of three and why you should have more than one method of food preservation to make sure that you and your family and loved ones have food security going forward. Now we want you to take action. And the easiest way to take action is to freeze or to dry bananas and to use them afterwards. Now, if you don't like bananas, you could take another fruit like an apple and it's the same method. Cut it into how you like to eat it and either put it in the freezer or put it in a dehydrator and dry it. But it's really important that you take the first step. And once you see how easy it is, I'm sure you'll agree with us that it's a great action to take going forward. Thank you, Sarah, for being with me today and helping me with this episode. And thank you, listeners, for uh, being part of this. Don't forget to take that one step and start preserving one food if you've never preserved food before.